So we'll switch things up a little bit for the kids. You can listen for the questions during the course of the sermon. I'm not going to give them to you at the beginning, so you'll have to listen closely. So we'll try that for today. As we think about different times, places, and families, let me start by talking about a different time. The early 1900s was rather different than our present experience. My great-grandfather lived down in South Georgia, grew up in a one-room schoolhouse, grew up in a context of farming, uh, fishing, had no phone, no TV, no interstate, no supermarkets, and so his experience of daily life was rather different than what we experience today. In terms of different places, I had the opportunity when I was a teenager to go down and visit Mexico. And there was a lot of things that were different in that place than in Indiana where I grew up. Anything from uh, spicy food being mixed with chocolate, which to us might seem an, an odd combination, but it was quite good. Uh, the restriction on not being able to drink the water, or at least they cautioned us against doing it since... Uh, wasn't used to having lived there for a long period of time. The practice of having a 15th birthday celebration for girls. The fact that every city had a cathedral. All these things were different in many ways from where I grew up versus uh, this particular area of Mexico. And then thirdly, every family is different. One of the first things that Kelly and I had to work out was which pots and pans we were going to buy when we were getting married. And uh, it almost came to an argument, foolishly on my part, because first of all, it really didn't matter, and second of all, I wasn't going to be the one using them most of the time anyway, so why was I worried about it? But I'm sure you've had these experiences as well. Differences in family, simple things like how do you hang the towel on the wall? What do you do with the toothpaste tube? Do you do you run the AC or open the windows? Just a, a variety of cultural differences between families. If there are all these differences given a hundred years' time between my great-grandfather's experience and mine, giving a couple thousand miles distance between where I grew up in Indiana and the town I visited in Mexico, or even the cultural differences between two families raised in, in connected states in the Midwest, then consider the vast gap that we have to bridge every time we look at the scripture. Not just a hundred years, but anywhere from 2,000 to four or 5,000. Not just a couple thousand miles, but something like 6,000 miles between us and the land of Israel. Not just a cultural difference of two families in the same country in adjoining states, but cultural differences that mean that when we read certain passages of Scripture, we say, I have no idea what that means. So how can we hope to understand God's commands properly and follow them well, given all of these differences? And so I want us to look primarily this morning at 1 Thessalonians 5.26 as an illustration of several principles about bridging the time, place, and culture differences between our experience and that of the original hearers. And so uh, Mike already read it for us, but 
Let me just read it for you again. It says in verse 26, Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Let me ask you this. How many of you did that today? And if you didn't, then there's potentially three reasons. There might be more, but these are the three that I thought of. We don't understand what it means, so we don't do it. We are disobeying on purpose. We say we should be doing this, but I'm not going to, and we just don't do it. Or, and this is what I'll be arguing for this morning, that there is a proper way to honor this command today that is different from the way that it was observed in Paul's day. Some background before we consider why that might be the case. What is a command? A command is an instruction given by God that requires a response. The Ten Commandments are the best-known example, perhaps, for us, even though they were given to Israel and not to the church, but they were a list of expectations that God had for the people of Israel that showed that they had a relationship with him and that they were following him in obedience. What, then, is the right response to a command? If a command is an instruction that requires a response, what is the right response? And that leads us to our first point, which is this. We must obey God's commands. And there's a positive and a negative reason to obey God's commands. And I'm sure you can uh, guess what those might be. Positively, or negatively, I should say, because obeying, uh, disobeying God's commands brings punishment. You need to obey because to disobey results in punishment. Just a few examples. Consider Adam and Eve. What did God say to Adam? He said, don't eat of the tree of life. Don't eat the fruit of it. And what did Adam and Eve do? They ate the fruit of the tree of life. And the result was they were cast out of the Garden of Eden. There was a curse placed on the man and on the woman and on the serpent through whom the deceit came when uh, Satan uh, spoke through that, that animal. Consider Cain. God said, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. Resist it. Don't follow through on it. What did Cain do? Cain disobeyed. And God cast him out, put a curse on him, sent him to wander the earth and never to have a lasting, resting home. Consider what it says in the book of Hebrews. It says, marriage is honorable in all, but adulterers God will judge. And so disobedience to that command of God brings punishment. Consider those outside heaven's gates. What is one of the key phrases that describes them? They are disobedient in various ways to God's law. So negatively, disobeying God's commands brings punishment. Positively, obeying God's commands brings blessing. Consider the example of Christ. Christ obeyed perfectly his Father's will. And what was the response that we see, for example, in the book of Ephesians? He was raised, he was exalted, he, was, he, he reigns rightfully over all things. Why? Because he obeyed. Consider the interesting language of Romans 2 where it says that if we obeyed God's law, we would be acceptable in his sight. None of us live up to that, and so we're not acceptable in his sight, but it says clearly there that if there was such a person that obeyed perfectly, we would be accepted by God. So we must obey God's commands because disobeying brings punishment and because obeying brings blessing. And although we must obey God's commands, we should also recognize that we must obey God's commands that he has given to us specifically. 
Before I go into that, let me pause a moment and, and go back. When I say that we must obey God's commands, who is able to do that? Clearly, the only people who are able to obey God's commands are those in whom he dwells who have a relationship with him. Because it is not possible for us to obey God's commands in our own strength. If I say, well, I'm just going to try a little bit harder, we all know how well that goes. We say, I'm going I'm to do this, and we might succeed for uh, you know, a week, a month, six months at obeying some part of what God expects us to do. But there's all these other ways that we're going to fail. Or put it this way, if you think of the, the most upstanding person that you can imagine, and let's compare him to an Olympic swimmer, and then let's say you don't feel that you meet up quite to his level, it's just a regular person who maybe goes to the pool once in a while, and let's say that the task set for you is to swim the Pacific Ocean, who's going to succeed? No one's going to succeed. You're both going to fail. He may get slightly farther, but at the end of the day, both of you are going to fail and both of you are going to drown, and it doesn't matter that he made it however many yards further than you did or however many miles further than you did. If you both fail, why would we try to work our way to God? We don't obey God's commands to work our way to God because that's an impossible task. Rather, if we have a relationship with God because we're trusting in Jesus, then the only proper response is to say, I want to do what the one who has given me new life expects of me. And so we must obey God's commands, but we also need to recognize, secondly, that we must obey God's commands that he has given to us specifically. And this is important because sometimes we get confused when we look at certain parts of the Bible and we'll say, well, I need to obey what the Bible says, and maybe we turn to an Old Testament passage and we say, well, I need to do the thing that this verse says. And sometimes that leads to all sorts of creative misuse of what the scripture says because we are, uh, fail to understand that particular passages were written originally to someone else or commanded to someone else. So just an example, God told Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. That's not a blanket command for every person who has a son to go sacrifice that son. That was a specific command for Abraham to illustrate and to essentially to be a picture of Christ because remember what happens in, the, in God uh, sort of uh, turning that aside there is a, a sheep that's caught in a shrub near where Abraham is going to sacrifice Isaac and that sheep is sacrificed instead of Isaac and that is a picture that, that looks forward to Christ or seeing Christ we look back to that picture and so that was an illustration that God specifically set up only in the particular case of Abraham. It's not a general command for everyone. So some commands are given to a specific person. Connected with this would probably also be the commands that God gave to Israel where he says if you obey them, then you'll have certain measure of wealth and land and family and all those sorts of things. God hasn't given those promises to us. What has God told us in the New Testament? If you live in me, that you will have tribulation in this world. Those who live godly in Christ Jesus will face persecution. And so we're not guaranteed health and happiness in the way that the Israelites were, were given those same promises in the context of the land where God placed them. So some commands are given to a specific person or group. Some commands are given for a specific situation or a time period. For example, the animal sacrifices that the people of Israel were supposed to do until the coming of Christ, 
What does it say in Hebrews? Christ offered himself once and for all. Do we need to do animal sacrifices today? No. Do we need to follow all of those other rituals connected with the worship in the temple? No. Why? Because Christ fulfilled all of the requirements of the law, and his fulfillment of those things means that we don't have to practice them any longer. Now, just to clarify, does that mean we're under no law? No. Paul says we're under the law of Christ. And so that's important to recall, that just because Christ has fulfilled the law of the Old Testament doesn't mean that we can do whatever we want. Rather, we must follow and obey the things that Christ has commanded us as the church. So we must obey God's commands. We must obey God's commands that he has given to us specifically. But the point that I want us to focus on most this morning is this. We must obey God's commands with wisdom regarding cultural matters. Why is this important? Well, because I think that we have to recognize that the expression of some of the commands in the New Testament does change. Why do I say that? Well, what's the expression that's given in verse 26? It says, with a holy kiss. That's what I mean is the action, the symbol, the example of the command, greet all the brethren, is with a holy kiss. Why do I say that might change? Or how do we know when the expression of a command can change? I think there's at least three potential areas that we can examine to help us determine, is this something that we must do exactly the same way today, or is this something that potentially can change? The first reason, or the first thing we should consider is this. When the expression no longer means now what it meant then, when the symbol has lost or changed its meaning, then we should consider whether a different symbol or expression is appropriate. So, for example, in their culture, a kiss of greeting, uh, perhaps not originally, but at least uh, by the second or third century, this would have been what you might see if you go to a Middle Eastern context where people would, would greet each other by a man kissing a man on the cheek or a woman kissing a woman on the cheek. It was a form of greeting that was understood in their culture as, as a sign of love and affection and, and all of those sorts of things. But consider the difference between that versus our culture. Given our specific context, if you see a man greeting a man by a kiss on the cheek or a woman greeting a woman by a kiss on the cheek, that's not going to be the first thing that you think, that this is an expression of love and affection between Christian brothers and sisters in Christ. It has a different association in our specific context. Not always, but most of the time, that will be the first thing that people will think. Not what this passage is talking about, but something different. Potentially, something quite wrong where people don't believe what God teaches about marriage and family and all those sorts of things, but someone believes something completely opposite to that. So then the question comes, but, but shouldn't we be able to win the symbol back or redeem the symbol? Well, let me just give you a parallel example. Um, in Genesis, God sets a rainbow in the clouds as a sign of his promise never to flood the earth again. Should we teach that to our children? Yes, should we know it for ourselves? Absolutely. But is it a profitable and effective 
and a primary goal for us to try to win that symbol back as far as like a bumper sticker on our car? Probably not. Because I can look up in the sky and I can say, hey, that's what that means. But if I put that symbol as a bumper sticker on my car, it's going to mean something else to most people who see it. And it's not really going to be the best use of my time trying to constantly explain, well, I mean something different by that. Because just the dramatic swing in our culture. So the expression may change when the symbol has lost its meaning. But the expression may change also when the expression itself is not the fundamental principle, but an illustration of that principle. So this is why I had us consider some of these other passages in our scripture reading because there are a number of other examples of things that uh, in some, some parts of which Paul ties to creation order. So for example, in 1 Corinthians 11, what is the principle that Paul says is the, the non-negotiable item? He says, Christ is the head of every man, the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. And then, in verses 4 and 5, he illustrates that with a particular practice that in their culture signified an acknowledgement of the order of things. That God is over Christ, Christ is over man, man is over woman, particularly in the context of the church. Similarly, in 1 Timothy 2, where it says, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority, but to remain quiet. It was Adam who was first created and then Eve. Not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Again, the point is not that women are somehow inferior. The point is not that men are automatically better. The point is God established a creation order. When that creation order was violated, that is the point at which sin entered into the world. And consider many of the problems in our society today that are connected with the reversal of the order that God established. What is that order? God, man, woman, children, animals. So consider some of the problems in society today when, for example, children and animals are switched. I mean, animals and pets are, are great. I, I don't have any objection to them. Uh, we have some, we're attached to them. We put up with a lot of their antics, probably more than we should. But there are people who will prioritize rescuing kittens and puppies and have no problem with someone who says, oh, let's, let's abort babies. Is that a, a mix-up in priorities? I think we would say that it is. Why? At least in part because it's a reversal of the priority of the order God established in creation, which says that human life is more important than animal life. Or consider the reversal of authority in a home where children are placed in authority over mothers and fathers. Instead of the parents saying, here's how things will be, and here's what we're going to do in the home, the kids get to say, here's how we're going to make things happen. We're going to do this, and the parents say, you need to do this instead. And the kids throw a fit, and the parents say, okay, who's in charge of that home? The kids are. Why? Is that a problem? Or what, where does that flow out of? It flows out of a, a failure to recognize the order in which God set up the home. Or consider... Um, a reversal in the relationship between men and women. Again, this is not a question of importance or, or value or worth or any of those sorts of things. It's not to say that men are automatically better at certain things because there are some men that are, that are 
great with money and some men that are terrible at money and it doesn't mean that men have to do everything in the home and yet consider a home in which the husband says you know what I don't really feel like doing anything when I get home I'm going to sit back I'm going to be lazy I'm going to let my wife do everything I'm going to let her run the home you know we have we have uh that sort of mindset perpetuated not just in society, but sometimes in our churches. You know, we say jokingly, uh, there was a, an example of someone who said, well, I let my wife make all of the minor decisions, but there haven't been any major decisions. And that really rubbed me the wrong way because at the end of the day, men, you and I will have a accountability to God for how we have led our homes. And if we've done it poorly, we can't say, well, God, it's the woman you gave me, you know? So what's the core principle? The core principle in these passages is the creation order. The thing that follows after it in the passages is an illustration of, the cre- uh, of that creation order. I think hopefully we would recognize that these practices have different meanings today than they did in the time that they were given. And hopefully we'd also see that we can and should uphold the principles in various ways. And if that's a point about which you're not convinced from what I've showed you so far, I'd love to discuss that with you further. But at some level, I think we have to acknowledge that there is a difference between the idea itself and a symbol or a representation or a picture of that idea. When is a third instance or criteria or something like that for when it is possible for the symbol or the expression of the principle to change? And I think that a third one would be when it is not a core function of the church. What are, what are essential things that the church must do? We call them ordinances. Uh, in our church, we have two, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Do we stop doing these things simply because they have been misunderstood at various points in church history? There were at least anecdotal accounts that the early church was accused of cannibalism because they spoke of the body and blood of Christ. Is that a reason for us to stop using that language or stop observing the Lord's Supper? No, because that's something that Christ specifically commanded the church to do. Same thing with baptism. If there's some misunderstanding about the significance of baptism, do we stop doing it? No. That being said... What about the difference between baptism and the Lord's Supper and take something that's practiced in some churches, which would be the example of foot washing? Foot washing was a sign of service in the early church. And going back to the passage in 1 Timothy 5, does that mean that in our context, we have to require a widow to have practiced foot washing before we say, we'll help you out with some specific need that you have? Now, in some churches, that would be a requirement. So I recognize that there are different practices in different churches. But that being said, I think that we would have to recognize that the practice of foot washing is in a different category than the practice of observing the Lord's Supper and baptism. Why? Because both the principle and the symbol have not changed with regards to baptism and the Lord's Supper Something like foot washing has very specific cultural implications at the time of the New Testament. Furthermore, there are other ways in which that attitude of service could be demonstrated in the church. A widow could demonstrate the sort of character that Paul's getting after in 1 Timothy 5 by saying, I will serve in the nursery. And, and 
this is not a criticism of any kids in the nursery or in any nursery generally, but if you've ever served in a nursery, you know it can be challenging because little kids have a lot of energy. They, they want to pull things off the shelves, all those sorts of things. So it, it would be a sign of service for someone to say, I'm willing to give of my time and my energy and all of those sorts of things to serve in that way. Perhaps a widow could show an attitude of service by writing cards to the sick. Maybe there's a widow who's physically incapacitated, can't get out anymore, but she says, you know what, I'm going to have a ministry encouraging people by writing cards to them. That would be a legitimate way to show an attitude of service. Um, perhaps there is uh, a widow who God is blessed with a lot of energy and and uh, you know maybe carpentry skills. And she says, you know what, I'm going to come help rebuild the ramp on a work day. More power to her. There's nothing wrong with that either. But those are more practical expressions in our context of an attitude of service than foot washing. We'll talk more about that in a moment. So there are instances in which the application, the expression, the symbol can change. That being said, the core principle, the command, the thing that Paul is getting after can't change. So what does that need to be? Well, in, he, in this text, it's greet one another, greet all the brethren. So how do we figure out what that principle is? I think we have to ask ourselves, looking at 1 Thessalonians 5.26 again, what is the point of greeting one another? Now, I think this one is a little easier than some of the other passages that we read in our scripture reading. I think Paul wanted the Thessalonians to be showing love to one another. Some of the uh, folks who have commented on this passage and studied this passage think that Paul was basically saying, greet one another with a holy kiss, sort of in my name, or, or, or greet them from me in this way. But this was something that the individual church members were supposed to be doing to one another. Why? To show friendliness, to show hospitality, but essentially to show love to one another. There is a bond, there is a connection between Christian brothers and sisters that was expressed in greeting one another and specifically in their culture by greeting with a holy kiss. So let's tackle some of the more challenging ones. What about those other passages that we read? And I don't have time to do them justice this morning. And I recognize that there are conscience issues connected with them. So, for example, if someone came from a background of a church that practiced foot washing, my point in laying these things out is not immediately to say you're in sin or anything like that. It's simply to say, is this the best and clearest expression of the principle that is in that passage? Furthermore, um, I think we have to recognize that since we do not currently practice that, for example, we don't currently do foot washing at this church, that there would have to be a significant examination of these things for us to have a reason to pursue that practice when we're not already doing it. So let, let's talk further about what these different things mean. Foot washing illustrated an attitude of service and a principle of hospitality. But consider the differences between our present circumstance and that day. Do we come, when we gather, into a circumstance in which we all have dusty feet from walking long distances, in which someone could express service by pulling out a bowl of water and a towel and washing the feet of other in the others in the church. That's not our experience. That's not our context. Could someone theoretically say, I want to do it symbolically? Yes. 
but practically speaking, does it have the same force or meaning or value that it did in their day? I think we'd have to admit that it doesn't. Or, for example, in Paul's day, the issue of head coverings. It illustrated the principle of a wife submitting to her husband. Now, can a wife submit to her husband in a variety of ways? Yes. It could be practical things in our day of simply saying, you know, hey, I'm going to get together with so-and-so this week, and maybe you could say, you know what, uh, I think we're planning to do something else. Let me check with my husband before we commit to that. And maybe you, you guys, someone is all synced up with, with uh, Google Calendar. You know exactly what everyone's doing. So you don't have to do that checking because you already know everything that's going to be going on in the week. Okay, maybe that's not the best example. Maybe it's something of when the father and the mother are both present, the mother defers to the, to the, the father, to her husband, and lets him take care of issues of discipline and instruction of the kids to teach them that they need to respect their father's authority and that he's the final authority in the home and that they need to follow that. And I'm sure that you could think of other examples, but there are a variety of ways to show, in contrast to the culture in which we live, in which uh, that sort of idea is, is almost repulsive to people, that there is a proper order in the home and we're acknowledging and, and following it. Why is it important for us to consider the fact that meanings and symbols change because we can look at a passage of scripture and say that meant that in that time and then we can look around us and say well what does that mean now and we should be able to think about the fact that it might mean something different in our time so for example just as a parallel if you see two guys in white shirts and ties riding bicycles and coming down your street what's your thought going to be there's a specific association in our culture that they are probably connected with the Mormon church. So let's say that we say we're going to go knock on doors. Would it be helpful or unhelpful for us to do that same thing? Probably unhelpful because it's immediately going to mean more people are going to close their doors because they say, I don't want to talk to these people. Is there anything wrong with wearing a white shirt and tie? No, other than it can be uncomfortable and, and you know, that's a whole different issue. There's nothing morally wrong with it, but in terms of wisdom, if something has such a clear association with the people that we're trying to reach, why would we create unnecessary obstacles for the gospel by adopting a practice that clearly means something else to the people that we're trying to witness to? And I think that you would find that many people would have that same sort of association if we dress in certain ways, if we wear certain things, people will potentially have those same associations and then we try to give them the gospel and already out the door there's potentially an unnecessary obstacle to them hearing the gospel. Going to the, uh, a little bit later in that same passage, uh, in Paul's day, length of hair illustrated the difference between men and women and still does today to some extent. But I think we have to recognize that being male or being female expressing masculinity or femininity should not be a case of pulling out a ruler and saying, how many inches of hair do you have? Why? Because there's a lot more to it than that. 
And I think in a, in a context where people are confused about the differences between men and women, about where they fall in one of those two boxes, sometimes the church has done a disservice to people who are struggling with those issues by saying, here's exactly what a man looks like, here's exactly what a woman looks like, and defining it in terms of ideas outside the Bible that are derived from our own experiences growing up, from what people generally have said. Again, there are things that are, that are clearly right and clearly wrong for men and women to do. But if we say, you know, here's a guy who likes to bake brownies, does that make him not a man? Here's a woman who likes to go running, does that make her not a woman? We need to be careful that we're not setting up extra biblical distinctions, but rather focusing on the biblical requirements of things like character and leadership and all of those sorts of things. Another example, lifting up hands in prayer. If we looked at that command and Paul says, I want men everywhere to pray lifting up holy hands, does that mean that all other forms of prayer are wrong? We see many examples of a variety of forms or modes or uh, positions of prayer. And so we should not assume that this is the only one simply because of the way Paul phrased that particular command. And then the last one, where it says to avoid braided hair, or it says to avoid uh, costly clothing or fancy jewelry, does that mean that it's sinful for a woman to come to church with one of those things? I think if we consider the context of the New Testament, think about what was going on in their culture. Think about, for example, a parallel passage in James 2 where it says, here comes someone in dressed very nicely. Here comes in someone dressed very poorly. How do you treat those two people? And at least in the audience that James was addressing, they were gravitating toward the people that were dressed really nicely, and they were moving away from the people that were dressed poorly because they said, these people can give me something, and these people can't give me something, and that's not an attitude that we should have in the church. We should minister to everyone equally. And so it seems that the reason that Paul gave that specific instruction to that specific church was because he wanted to help them avoid some of these particular issues. So then how do we decide an appropriate cultural expression that upholds or obeys the timeless principle? Going back to our passage where it says, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. If greeting one another with a kiss no longer upholds well the idea of holiness or the idea of Christian greeting, then what is an alternative and acceptable replacement in our day? And I would think that it would be potentially some combination of a handshake, a hug, a verbal greeting, hello, how are you doing, with a desire to actually hear the response, not just because that's what we say, perhaps accompanied with a smile so that people know that they're welcome, would that uphold the principle that Paul was after of show Christian love and affection in an appropriate and a holy way? I think we could say yes, that it would. So the Bible stands at a great distance from us as far as time, geography, and culture and yet we must follow the commands that God has given to us. And this requires a great deal of wisdom. 
to look and see what the things that the original author said meant to the original audience, to consider why they said them the way that they said them, to consider what would communicate those same things in the present day. I hope that we're convinced that we must obey God, that we must obey God according to the commands that he has given us specifically, and that we must obey God with wisdom regarding cultural matters. And if these are true, I think that we can still obey 1 Thessalonians 5.26 as well as the other passages without necessarily adopting the specific expression that was present in Paul's day. Now the hesitation that you may be thinking is, well that sounds like we just change the Bible to say whatever we want. But hopefully, as we've walked through this, you've seen that the point of this is not to do whatever we want. It's to do the things that God wants us to do in a way that clearly communicates that truth to people today, that doesn't create obstacles for the gospel, that doesn't create confusion and disunity in the church, and that honors God in our approach to these things. And so coming back to the verse that we've been using as an example, do you do this? I say, no, because I read the last phrase, and I said, I don't do that, so I'm not going to do any of it. We have a responsibility to show holy love and godly affection for one another in the church. We should walk into the church with an expectation that we will greet one another with kindness and affection and, and appropriate expressions of love. And so if we didn't do this today... I would encourage you to do it after the service. And if it's not your regular practice to do this, I would say, start doing it. And that's uncomfortable for some of us. My wife can attest to when I, when I first uh, showed up in the church that she grew up in and that I started attending when I came to seminary. I was not an outgoing person. I was content to go sit in the corner, not talk to anybody. Hopefully I'm doing some better at that now. If your personality is to say, I'd rather be over here by myself with a book, not talking to anybody, you might have to work at this. If your tendency is to be somebody that likes to get right up in people's faces, you may have to dial it back a bit. We need to show love and affection in a proper way that shows the connection and the bond and the unity that we have in Christ. And that, I think, is the point of what Paul is getting at. So greet one another. Let's pray. Lord, as we consider these truths, there is a, just a, a need for wisdom to apply them properly, a need for patience with one another because we may all be in different places in terms of our consciences and our understanding of these issues. Lord, I pray that you would help us to seek to honor your word, to be patient with one another as we study your word and, and understand it better. Lord, not to be arrogant or proud or think that we have fully understood your word and that there is never any room for us to grow in our understanding of it. Lord, I pray that we would show proper love, even as we were reminded in Sunday school this morning, even as we were reminded of the, uh, the point of this particular passage that we 
ought to show love to one another because we are members of one another in Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to do that well even this week. Lord, help us to consider these ideas, to, to ponder them, to ask questions as appropriate, uh, to just seek to follow you well, to bridge the divide of time and place and cultural differences, not to say, I don't know what it's saying, so I'm not going to bother, not to say, I, I'm, I don't want to do it, but to say, how can I do this in a way that honors you and clearly communicates and provides opportunities to build up fellow believers and witness to the lost. Help us to do this well, Lord, and to do it in a way that honors you in Christ's name. Amen.